Let's pray together. Father, that is our prayer in this moment, uh, that as we now um, come to your word, that it would allow us to draw closer to you. Father, to your precious bleeding side, that we would see more clearly and more powerfully the hope of this gospel and all that it provides to each and every one of us. God, we thank you for meeting us, for loving us in such a way that we know that you are here. May, may your spirit truly inhabit this place, our hearts, our souls, and our minds, and let this word become living and active, God, as we draw closer to you. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. And amen. Thank you. You all can be seated. All right. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Acts chapter 20 uh, if you have your Bibles with you today. Uh, this is going to be the last message in our sub-series that we've been going through for the last several weeks that's been focused on the renewed church. Just as a kind of an overview and a reminder, our theme for the year has been uh, obviously related to uh, living as God's renewed people um, in the renewed life. And we've been using Romans as our guide throughout the year. And so we'll finish up this sub-series today where we've been focused in on Acts. And then uh, next week, we're going to go back to Romans for the rest of September, uh, looking at Romans chapter 7. And, and chapter 7 is a really important chapter that helps us understand how do you experience renewal while still struggling with the sinful flesh? Uh, and so that's going to be an important couple of weeks that we walk through for the rest of September. And once we finish chapter 7, we're going to take another break in October, and that's when we're going to do a series on doubt uh, and all the different sorts of doubts that we often encounter in life and how do we wrestle with those doubts in a healthy way that actually strengthens our faith. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to that series in October. should be a really great time for us to really try to dive into some of the more difficult questions that we often encounter uh, in the experience of Christian faith. Um, and so once we get through October, we'll get back to Romans 8, and that's going to take us through Missions Month in November as well as Advent. So I'm really looking forward to the, to the things that we're going to have a chance to discuss this fall and hope you are able to join us in that journey uh, but as I said, today kind of marks the end of this sub-series where we've been focusing in on the renewed church. Uh, we started this conversation several weeks ago by looking at Acts chapter 2, which gives us that kind of overarching description of, the, of the, the church as it really begins to take root and be established in the movement of the gospel. And uh, you look at all those different things that we talked about in terms of their devotion, the early church's devotion towards the things that they did and the people that they were. Right, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, signs and wonders, generosity. Right? These were the things that they did, and there was a true level of devotion that was evident in that behavior and in that conduct. But it wasn't just the things that they did. It was who they were as people. Right? That when they gathered together in each other's homes or in the temple courts, they did so with glad and sincere hearts. They were joyful people. Right? They, they had the simplicity that they embraced as well. And so we, we talked about that as some of the foundational understanding of the renewed church. And then we started looking at examples of how churches begin to live that out. Started with a discussion in Philippi and, and looking at the eclectic group of people that came together in Acts chapter 16 between the Lydian lady, uh, this, the slave girl, and then the jailer, the Roman jailer. And, and really that that eclectic group shows us some pretty important reminders, most notably that the gospel is for all people, transforms all people, and unifies all people. Uh, then last week, we were in Acts 17, and we had a chance to look at Paul's journey to Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. 
And the main takeaway from that discussion last week was that when we look at the Renew Church, the Renew Church is a place that builds bridges and not walls, right? We, we look to meet people where they are, not where we want them to be, because that's what God did for us. And so we've had some great conversations uh, throughout the course of this series and a chance to look at some very tangible and practical examples. Today, we're going to take a slightly different approach. Rather than looking at a specific interaction in a particular city, uh, we're going to look in on Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. And uh, this is a really unique presentation because it really kind of gives us a sense of Paul's final instructions to this church. It's not the letter that we see, uh, in, uh, to, that we refer to as the Ephesians, but it's this exchange that really kind of gives Paul a chance to say, hey, since I'm not going to see you again, here's what I want you to know. And so he gives some final instructions. He couples it with some very important things where he defends his ministry and his approach to ministry, and, and in so doing, kind of demonstrates a certain example that he modeled for them. So between uh, the example that he defends in his own conduct and the final instructions, we get this really great comprehensive picture of what the renewed church should look like. Like, this is what you should aim to be. And so it's going to be a great survey of a lot of those different things. Now, a couple of points before we, we dive into this this morning. Uh, one is this, is that this is unique also because of the audience that he's speaking to in Acts chapter 20. If you think about all of his missionary journeys where he's work, uh, working with uh, the folks in, in Ephesus or Athens or Thessalonica, Berea, or all these different places that we're talking about, or even later in the book of Acts when you get to Acts chapters 22 through 26, and he's constantly given a defense for his ministry, often in the presence of Roman officials, right, and, and all the persecution that he's enduring. In almost all of those situations and settings, he is speaking, understanding that there are non-believers in the room. And, and he's aware of that, and so he tends to speak to that and demonstrates a desire for them to believe in Jesus as Messiah. What's unique about Acts chapter 20 is that this is more of an intimate conversation between himself and the Ephesian elders that kind of says this is specifically for a Christian audience, right? He's, he's saying this is who I want you to be as the church. Now, I offer that up uh, with a little bit of a disclaimer, right? Part of that is, is because I think it really speaks to any of us that are part of a church that consider ourselves uh, part of the body of Christ. Like, this is something that we say, okay, this is what we're supposed to be. Now, if you would consider yourself today as someone who's still seeking, still trying to wrestle with what do you believe, do you really trust this Jesus and this gospel, then what this message means for you today is you get a chance to look in on the church and say, this is what the church should aspire to be. Let me give you some news. There is no perfect church, including this one. Like, if you thought this might be it, I'll just go ahead and, I'll just go ahead and break it to you. We're not. Right, But this is what we aspire to. And by getting a chance to see that, you're going to get a chance to also encounter the grace of God in a very profound way today. And my hope is that by looking at all these things, you, you if you are still wrestling, will have the opportunity to say, yes, that's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want my life to aim towards as well. And that's going to be a lot of what we talk about today. So there's a lot to read. We're actually going to read today. Uh, the last two weeks we've done just more of a summary, uh, but it is a larger section of Scripture. It's going to be Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, and we'll get a chance to see both Paul's defense, his instructions, and kind of the final farewell. So follow along with me. We have it up on the screens for you this morning. It says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. 
You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was a statement that they would never see his face again, and then they accompanied him to the ship. All right, so a lot to uncover there, and several things that we'll review today. Now, let me just preface it with this. I know that my reputation is to preach long sermons. I get it. I get it, right? And, and so it, one of the things I'll say, a lot of that's cultural, okay? I used to be a missions pastor, traveled all over the world. A lot of churches, they're an hour and a half into their service and they're just getting started, okay? So just remember, context is king. But I recognize that's my reputation. So I don't know how you're going to feel when I tell you at the beginning of the sermon, this is a sermon that has 10 points to it, okay? I'm sure when I say that, some of you are like, run, go now, like, please, he's going to keep us here all day. You're going to think of excuses, start coughing and be like, got to go get some water and never come back. It's okay, all right? We're going to get through it quickly. Here's the reason, Okay. Uh, much like the last several weeks, we're not taking deep dives into this. This is, this is a tour of the Renewed Church. Uh, just recently, we welcomed Martha Harvey to be our new children's minister. And as a part of that process, the other day, I, I had a chance to give her family a tour of our church facilities. And, and just like you would imagine, when you go on a tour of this church campus, you're not stopping off in every room, sitting down and analyzing every little detail. You know, you're, you're, you're given an introduction. Here's youth ministry, here's children's ministry, here's missions, here's fellowship hall, here's, here's the sanctuary, here's the chapel. And, and so the common thread is that it's all on the same campus. And so you're not taking a deep dive into every detail. That's how we've done this whole series. That's how we'll go today. Uh, we're going to do a quick tour of Paul's farewell. Um, and we won't, we won't go into all the details of it, but we'll be able to get through it somewhat quickly. So, so fear not. Uh, it won't be too long. I'm not saying it's going to be short. I'm just saying it won't be too long, okay? So 10 points. Let's go with point number one. Uh, the first point that I have for us, since it's 10 points, I'm sitting down today. Um, the first, <laughs> y'all get to. I should be able to every once in a while. All right, point number one. Uh, this comes from Paul's defense and his example. The renewed church serves the Lord with great humility. 
Right? I love that that's one of his opening statements. Right? You've known me from the very beginning, from the first time that I arrived here and how I lived my whole time in Asia. I've served the Lord with great humility. That's exactly uh, who we are supposed to be as the renewed church. Right? And, and break that down. Number one, we are called to serve. Right? We follow the example of Jesus who he himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom to many. Right? We are called to serve. And we should never lose sight of the object of our servant-heartedness right, and our servitude, which is what? The Lord. We are not called to serve an institution, a political party, an affiliation, an organization, or even ourselves. We are called to serve the Lord. And in that service, our posture is one of great humility. Right? That, that is the posture of the renewed church. And I emphasize that to you all this morning because it is not uncommon for the church to get at least one, if not all three of those wrong. Right? Like how often do we fall victim to the idea that we actually are here to be served rather than to serve? Like, like that's why we come to church, to be fed, to be served, to get all these different things, when in reality we're here to serve. How many times do we lose focus of the object of our servanthood, right? That we oftentimes misalign our hearts and we do begin working for organizations or our own self-interest or whatever it is. And we lose sight of the fact that we're called to serve the Lord. And, and that a lot of times when we fall victim to that, we give in to the ways of the world that tells us that, man, you should have your needs met. You should meet all these different uh, causes and desire, all these different things. And you can do that with confidence and pride and, and borderline arrogance, and the, the church adopts that posture. And so this is a great reminder. We are called to serve the Lord, not with a little, not with occasional, but with great humility. And Paul leads that out by example. And so it's something that we need to embrace and be reminded of. Now, I know it's tricky. I know it's not always easy. Uh, but I actually think that one of the ways that we can foster and, and tether ourselves to that sort of posture and disposition of humility is by the second point that he makes. Um, what he says next, and, and we're not necessarily always gonna go in sequential order, but notice to where this leads. Um, what we see from Paul's statement is we can also learn that the renewed church knows what it means to endure testing and hardship. Now this is really kind of combining verses 19 and 23. Uh, he, he says that he endured testing with great tears, and then later he says, man, I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to these cities. I don't know what's gonna await me there. All I do know is that it's gonna be prison and hardship. It's pretty remarkable, right? And so again, one of the reasons that is, is pretty, uh, I guess, poignant for us to consider in terms of how do we maintain a posture of humility is because when you consider the idea that the renewed church is called to endure testing and hardship, then it is a quick reminder that we are not entitled to privilege and convenience, right? I mean, like, that's, that's not the way of the renewed church. We serve a suffering Savior, and so the church needs to anticipate and expect and welcome the idea that testing and hardship is a huge part of our reality. Uh, there's this great quote uh, by William, excuse me, Willie James Jennings, who is one of my uh, favorite commentators on the book of Acts uh, that, he, that he mentioned in this regard. See this, guys? I'm already four pages in. You're good. Here's what he says when he talks about understanding testing and suffering. He says, God knows intimately what it means to be a body at risk in the world, a body in imminent danger. Paul know, now knows this too, but imminent danger is the reality of so many people in the world. So what then is the difference? Paul is showing us that God has drawn that risk into the divine life 
so that the risk and dangers that may confront us in life will not define our life. I love that. So essentially what Willie James Jennings is saying here is that, listen, God himself knows what it means to be a body at risk in the world, to face imminent danger. Paul now knows it too. And and what we see by understanding that aspect of the gospel, that God has taken on flesh and dwelt among us and experienced this risk, is that he has taken testing, he has taken hardship, and he has brought it into the divine life so that we can all know that our hardships do not define who we are. And so hear that very clearly today. This is a, a key principle of the Renewed Church. Your testing, your hardship does not define you, right? It shapes you. It never defines you. And so what that means is is that you are not just a cancer patient. You are not just a widow. You're not just an addict. You're not just barren or broken or forgotten or depressed or lonely. You are a child of God. That's what defines you. Testing and hardship shape you. They don't define you. Willie James Jennings continues uh, with this train of thought. He says, The value of my life has been transferred to God and I no longer hold it in my hands or by my efforts. Paul is a body in the spirit, having released control of it to God and given himself without remainder to the ministry of Jesus Christ. His point is is that Paul has now understood that what defines him is giving himself to the ministry of Jesus. And that's true for you and me, right? What defines us is our response to the gospel, That's what defines us, giving ourselves without remainder to Jesus, right? And that gives us the strength and the fortitude to endure testing and hardship when it comes our way. So the Renewed Church endures testing and hardship. Now, another way that we need to kind of use this to transition to point number three is how we need to recognize that because testing and hardship are such an inevitable part of the Christian experience, the human experience, that we long for help. Right, which is kind of the next point, point number three. He says, so I did not hesitate to preach anything that was helpful to you. Right, we, we long to make sense of our suffering. We, we need something to give us resolve to, to find the perseverance and endurance to navigate testing and hardship in life. And Paul recognizes that and that's exactly what he does and what the renewed church should do. To not hesitate in preaching that which is helpful to those who are in need and going through testing and hardship, right? And so again, the church is a place of, of preaching, proclamation, and teaching, but it has to be focused in on what the needs are. It has to be driven by something that is helpful and constructive, right? Too many voices circulate in our world today pointing to all the, the adversity, the hostility, the, the suffering, but they don't offer anything helpful, right? Voices that'll cast blame, that'll create arguments, that'll, that'll foster debates, but, but nothing that's really constructive and helpful. But the church, man, we see those things and we are su- supposed to bring in a helpful voice. I, I'm, to be honest, that's one of the reasons we launched Renewal, right? Like our, our weekly recovery ministry that we have on Wednesday nights to recognize that it's not enough just to come in on Sunday morning and be like, hey, God loves you, but to actually create a space where you can walk with people who can give helpful instructions, say, here's how you navigate adversity and hardship and testing in life. Right? Like, I mean, it's got to be helpful. And one of the other things that I love about this third point that Paul brings up is that there was no hesitation. Right? We, we, didn't, we didn't wait. We didn't linger. We didn't let it, let it just kind of negate or, or escape our focus. Right? I mean, we, we did not 
has they, with urgency, we came to people's aid and we started preaching that which was helpful. Which leads to point number four, right? Because when you start thinking, okay, well, what's helpful? What is this word that's gonna help us navigate testing and hardship? Well, then oftentimes what we have to be reminded of is that at the core of a helpful message is a message of repentance and faith in Jesus, right? So that's point number four, the renewed church carries the message of repentance and faith in Jesus. That's what, that's what Paul says. Man, I went to the Jews, I went to the Greeks. This is what the message was. True transformation out of sin, out of hardship, out of brokenness comes by way of repentance and faith in Christ. Okay, and so remember that repentance is essentially in its purest definition, turning away from something. But what I love about this this kind of summarization that Paul offers here is that we gotta remember that it's not about just what I'm turning away from, but what I'm turning to. Because a lot of us turn away from a lot of things, but we turn back to something else that's not any more helpful. So you gotta turn away from certain sins and brokenness in your life and, and turn to Jesus. Your faith has to be placed in Jesus. This has always been the gospel. This has always been the message of transformation. You don't find renewal without repentance. You don't find renewal without faith in Christ. And so maybe that's a place to stop and reflect this morning, right? What are the things, if you were to just stop and consider it for a moment, like what are the things that God is calling you to repent of or repent from? What is in your life that you're saying, I've got to stop doing this? I've got to turn away from anger. I've got to turn away from lust. I've got to turn away from bitterness, resentment, envy, greed. What is it? And when you identify those things, what is your heart telling you to turn to? You know what it means to truly trust Christ and to put your trust in Christ above all things. That's the message of the renewed church. It's a message of repentance and faith in Jesus, which then kind of leads to point five, where, where to me is, is this, this beautiful crescendo in Paul's defense uh, of the things that he's trying to kind of line up as a defense for himself uh, which is when he says, my only aim, right? I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna finish this task. My only aim has been to complete the task of testifying to God's grace. The renewed church has one focus, one aim, to testify to the good news of God's grace, amen? Listen, we're not here for programming. Like, we're not here for events and calendars, we're not here to figure out like the best genre of music and church budgets. We are here to testify to the good news of God's grace. That's why we're here. Everything that we do that might be event related, program related, budget related, whatever, is to assist us in that endeavor to testify to the good news of God's grace. That is our one and only aim as a church. And it should not just be our one and only aim as a church, but as us as individuals. Right? C.S. Lewis said this so well and, and so succinctly. He said, you know, you aim for heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. You aim for earth, you'll get neither. And, and the reality is, and the reason we've got to emphasize this this morning, is because too many of us are spending every day, every moment, every breath, every thought aiming for earth. background music <laughs> it's a new feature it's aiming aiming for earth a lot of times y'all 
is, is we end up getting distracted. We end up focusing on the things that are temporary, things that are fleeting, things that aren't gonna last, and we give our whole lives to it. Right? Like we'll give our whole lives to it and we'll miss the fulfillment, the, the, the purpose, the meaning that our hearts really long for. And so this is another great reminder. Like you have one central task in this life to testify to the good news of God's grace. And that's exactly what we've been called to do. And so is that something you're doing in your life, right? Like is that your aim? You could take some time this week to evaluate what, what am I really focused on? Where am I giving my energy, my attention? And how do I reorient myself to make sure that I too, like Paul, will do everything I can to empty myself, to finish this race, to run this race, to, to complete the task of testifying to God's good grace. That's exactly what we're called to do. And which is why this next point I think is really important. And this is the one that I probably will elaborate on a little bit longer this morning, which leads us to point six, right? Because this is our one primary task, then one of the things we can know is that the devil's gonna do anything he possibly can to distract us from it. And so Paul now kind of shifts to that spirit of instruction and says, okay, so keep watch. Be on guard, be alert. Heed these warnings. I've pleaded with you for three years. Listen to these warnings. Now, what does he warn them of, okay? Um, now, one of the things I'll say as we get into this is, this is obviously a, a word of instruction to the Ephesian elders, right, the, the leaders of the Ephesian church. And I realize that we could maybe take some of these instructions and say this is really just for church leadership. What I would tell you is I, I think it's for the whole church. Yes, church leadership needs to pay special attention to it. But all of us collectively, we need to be alert. We need to be on guard. We need to keep watch. And, and so what does he say? He says there, there are things that can happen. Number one, savage wolves can come in, right? And, and obviously the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep uh, a wolf is not a good thing. And so he refers to this, this external threat. Wolves can come in. But before he even elaborates on that, he says, and oh, by the way, some from even among your own number can rise up. And, and so we recognize pretty quickly that it's not just external threats, but it's internal threats as well. Now, this is tricky, Okay, because when you start hearing words like this, it, you, it can foster a spirit of paranoia, right? Where we're just like looking around, we're like, I don't trust you, I don't trust you, I don't trust you. Like, are you a wolf? You know, and, and we're constantly paranoid. That's not who we're supposed to be, right? Like we need to believe the best in people and, and God's redemptive work in people, but we also can't be naive, right? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and, and so we have to be alert. We have to keep watch. And so how do we do that? Like part, part of what we need to examine this morning is exactly what do the wolves, what do the external and internal threats do? What, what's kind of one of the main strategies that the devil implore, employs to create disruption? I, I was thinking about this and I, and I thought of a, a simple illustration to kind of make this point. So I was probably in late elementary school, early junior high, that kind of like pre-adolescent range. And it was the season of life where rolling was all the rage. And if you're wondering what rolling is, I'll clarify, because a lot of you probably refer to it as toilet papering a house or wrapping or something. Those are the wrong terms, okay? It's called rolling. You're welcome. This is part of what I'm here for, to teach you things. It's called rolling, okay? Uh, rolling was all the rage. Everybody would go rolling all the time. And so anytime you had a group of guys or girls together and there was going to be a slumber party, there was no doubt at this season of life that was going to be on the list of considerations of how you were going to spend your time. 
And so I'm over at my friend's house, Austin's house. He's having a slumber party. Me and several of my, my guys are over there. And uh, we're, we're hanging out. It's kind of early in the evening. And all of a sudden, Austin's dad, Mike, uh, says to us, he goes, hey, y'all, uh, you know, Hallie's got some friends spending the night tonight as well. Hallie was uh, our age. We knew her, her friends. She lived just like a street or two over in our neighborhood. And uh, so we were, you know, kind of ears perked up. What, what are they doing? And he says, yeah, Hallie's got some friends over tonight as well. And word on the street, rumor is, they're going rolling tonight, and they're after y'all. All right, you tell a couple of pre-adolescent boys like they're about to get rolled, like the eyes get wide, you're like, uh-uh, man, no way. And Operation Ambush was in full effect, okay? We started changing clothes. We were getting in camo. I don't remember if there was face paint. I'm sure we wanted it. And we start like getting battle stations drawn out for the front yard. You hide here. We'll be in the bushes over here. I think we had water balloons. I know for sure we had a hose and we got everything ready. And we got out in that front yard and we waited and we waited and we waited and nothing ever happened. (laughs) We spent our whole night out there in the front yard, totally focused on a threat that wasn't real. I don't remember if it was the next day, the next month, or the next year, but at one point, we finally realized that Mike, Austin's dad, had made the whole thing up. Um, and, and we were completely distracted because of what Mike had said. So, so here's the point, okay? Here's the point. Um, when you look at the scripture, what Paul says is that the external and internal threats will rise up to distort the truth and lead you astray. And so the, the illustration is very innocent, and I chose it because it's innocent. Um, but you see what happens? The, the threat wasn't Hallie. It wasn't rolling. It was actually a lie. A simple and subtle lie that we thought could be trustworthy that completely shifted our focus and distracted us and got us to waste all of our energy on a threat that wasn't real. And that's exactly what the devil wants to do. Distort the truth. And this is why. This is why that's so effective. We've talked about this on numerous occasions, y'all. What happens? When you have a truth problem, you have a trust problem. And when you have a trust problem, it develops into an anger problem. And we see this in our society all the time because we live in a very angry culture. And we are constantly so quick and ready to be hostile towards one another to yell at one another, cast blame at one another, and accuse people of all these different things. You wronged me, you're coming for this, you rigged this, this is corrupt, all these different things. And the reason we're so angry is because we don't trust anyone. And the reason we don't trust anyone is because we don't know what the truth is. And so what the devil knows is, man, if I can make the church an angry place, a divisive place, a distrusting place, all I need to do is sow one simple lie and distort the truth and watch it go. And so what we have to be on guard for is the truth, right? And, and, and a vigilant protection of the truth, knowing that one simple lie, deception, can easily lead us astray and that that can come from within the congregation, from the pulpit on the stage, or externally from wolves coming in. Right, and, and so again, just to continue my quoting of Willie James Jennings, he, he has a good quote on this one as well that I'll read to you this morning, because I think it, 
serves as a good reminder as to how this can actually happen. He says the Jesus movement draws people who see its potential as a source of unprecedented power and they bring enough personal charisma, theological knowledge, and social skill to exploit the gospel to its fullest possibilities. Such exploitation is not new news, but it's still poignant news. Paul understands that false words can easily slide under truthful speech and false shepherds hungry like the wolf can easily gain power. Right, and so the point is this, be it charisma, be it something that sounds theologically sound or something along those lines, man, it's easy to distort the truth. And so how do we guard against this? We have to have a fierce commitment to scripture. We say this all the time, man, we, we, are, we are gonna be biblically guided. And when we say that, it is not like the Bible is a suggestion, it is the word of God, it is authoritative in our lives. And so we are going to have a fierce commitment to the scriptures and we're gonna read the scriptures with an understanding and a respect for communal interpretation led by the Holy Spirit. Let me break that down for a moment. When I say communal interpretation, one of the things we have to guard against that has become more and more prevalent in the churches today is, oh, that's your interpretation. This is mine. And I hear that all the time, right? And, and here's the reason that's dangerous is because all that is is the mantra of our society that says, oh, that's your truth. This is mine. You do you, I'll do me. And what happens when you embrace that way of thinking is that truth is no longer discernible. It's individual. It's subjective. And so the way we cloak that in theological terms and we bring it into the church is, oh, that's just your interpretation. This is mine. And now truth is a debate. Truth is confusing. The reality is, throughout church history, and even today, the body of Christ has gathered together. There are numerous examples in the New Testament. The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, Paul's letters, his discussions with Timothy, the other leaders, the Ephesian elders. This is sound doctrine. We, we have long history that allows us to say this is good, reasonable, sound interpretation. And that is led by the Holy Spirit, another key marker of the renewed church, right? It's led by the Holy Spirit. Right? And, and so we have to fiercely commit ourselves to pursuing the truth through communal interpretation led by the Holy Spirit, seeing God's word as authoritative because the truth sets us free. Because Jesus is the truth as well as the way and the life. And the renewed church should always be a place that is an ambassador for that truth. But we have to keep watch to make that happen. All right, so now you get to point seven. Let me skip down a little bit to some of the final comments that Paul makes, and I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit for our, our tenth and final point. But after he talks about keeping watch and he gives these final instructions, he kind of goes back to a little bit of his defense, and he talks about the fact that he was never motivated by silver and gold. And, and so this is point number seven. The renewed church doesn't covet. And, and I love this, and it's worth Pointed out, it might sound a little simple, but it, it really kind of conjures up again the spirit of what we saw in Acts chapter 2. That one of the key characteristics of the early church was this an amazing generosity where people would sell their possessions to give to others that were in need. We talked about that in week one with this series. And now Paul is just kind of testifying to his own personal example of that. I mean, I was never motivated by silver and gold. That's not who I am. Right? He, he wasn't there to covet the possessions of others. And, and neither should we, right? The renewed church is not a place for covetous desires. And, and so let's, let's break that down a little bit and let's, let's think about why that can be so problematic. Uh, when you give in to coveting, it tends to lend itself down one or two paths. 
Uh, the first path is that when you really begin to covet and you really allow that desire to take root of your heart, then you're going to resolve in your mind to do anything within your power to get what you want, even if it means compromising who you are or who you were called to be. Right? Like you'll become so consumed with that desire. You'll do anything you can to get that promotion, to have that affair, to get that status, to get that paycheck, whatever it is, and you will compromise yourself in the process because of coveting. Right? That's one path. The other path that's really dangerous with coveting is that when you kind of resolve in your own mind, well, I can't actually get the thing that I want here that I'm desiring, then coveting really just turns to envy. Right? And so now I'm just jealous that someone else has what I don't. And I would tell you, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think this is a pretty obvious observation, right, that in our context today, uh, those covetous, envious desires are ignited much more readily and frequently. A lot of that contributed by social media, right, where people get to curate their perfect life and throw it out there for the world to see, and then everybody's like, oh, I wish I had that. And, and so we no longer just wrestle with desiring silver and gold in somebody's financial life. Now we just want their life. Wish we could go on that trip. Wish I could go to that restaurant. Wish I could go and do what they do. Wish I had their family. Wish I had, I mean, it, it, everything is, is, is filtered through this lens of comparison that creates envy. And so if you're like me, when envy settles in, you know what it does? Envy preys upon insecurities. That's what envy does, man. It just, it finds the most insecure parts of you and it, and it makes them fester, kind of gives them life, brings oxygen to those things. So like for me, like it's not hard, y'all. I'll, I'll confess this to you. There are times, man, I'll hear something another church is doing or something another pastor does and I'll think, man, that's cool. I wish we, wish we could have done that. And you, then you know what my impulse is once that happens and envy settles in? I'll find something to say negatively about that pastor or about that church. I rarely voice it anymore, but I still think it, right? Yeah, but they're not doing this. I bet this is their real motive. Yeah, but did you know they did this? Over? You're like, I'll find something negative to make me feel better because that's what envy does, right? It preys upon our insecurities rather than just celebrating with my brother and sister in Christ, right? So, so the renewed church is not a place for coveting. That's not what we're called to do, right? We don't wanna be so consumed with those desires, nor do we wanna let envy prey upon our insecurities. We don't covet and one of the things that will help with that is point number eight, right? Point number eight is this, uh, we help the weak. You see that? You, you see what Paul says, man, I did everything with my own hands. I labored so intentionally with all these things so that I could help the weak. Uh, the renewed church is a place that helps the weak. And the reason that helps with coveting is because it's just a reminder that our eyes should not be so focused on the haves, but more on the have-nots. Like, like our eyes should not be so fixated by the strong, but really paying attention to the weak. How do we help those in need? And when you see the needs of others and you're constantly driven by, by being motivated to speak into those needs, and that's gonna cure and prevent you against those covetous desires as well. But the renewed church is called to help the weak. I mean, this is, again, part of the gospel. What we've seen time and time again that Jesus committed his ministry to doing was was working among, serving among, ministering to the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed. And that's what we're called to do as well. And, and one of the things that I love about this that you could also even connect back to one of those first points about 
uh, preaching that which is helpful. But the word help means to devote oneself to. And, and again, that, that again just goes back to this overarching theme of renewal that we've talked about all year. The key characteristics of a renewed life is devotion, discernment, and delight. Right? And so this spirit of devotion is what prompts the heart to help. To help the weak. I'm going to be devoted to you. Making sure that, that your needs are met. And so maybe that's a question. Right? Maybe you can kind of pair that with point number seven as well. And and first, identify, man, what are, what are the covetous desires I, I sense in my heart? How do I surrender those and kill those? And maybe the way that I help put those to death is by finding God directing me towards the weak. Who, who in my life do I need to go help? Who do I need to devote my help to? Like, how much of your life right now is, is being devoted towards helping those who need it? Right? And not just what you need, but what others need. I think that's a good marker and a good litmus test for the church. And for us to ask ourselves that, not just individually, but collectively. And so I would tell you, if that's something God prompts you to do, man, we want to help you with that. Like, that's part of why we're here. You want to figure out a way to feed the hungry? We, we've got ways for you to help feed the hungry. You want to help encourage the prisoner? We've got that. You want to advocate for foster care and adoption? We've got that. You want to go build a house in Guatemala? We can do this. You want to help bring shoes to children who are in need? We'll do this. Like, there are endless opportunities of how we can reorient our hearts to help the weak, because that's what the renewed church does. And so that spirit of devotion leads us to point number nine, which is the renewed church loves one another, right? And this is, this is one that is not so much explicitly stated as much as that it is observed through the interaction between Paul and the Ephesian elders, right? Like, you, you see it here that that after all these instructions, after all this defense, what really moves them to this very meaningful and emotional embrace at the end was the fact that they weren't going to see each other anymore. Like that's, that's what compelled them was that, that they, they so loved being devoted to one another that the idea of being separate and apart from one another was, was grieving in many ways. And that's what compelled them to, to this emotional embrace. That shows us man, that the renewed church, they love one another. And I think that's such an important word for us, again, in our context, that I think really challenges and goes um, contrary to that normal mindset that a lot of people have when, when evaluating church, right? That, that kind of consumeristic mindset, and then even what makes you decide on a church. I mean, if, we, if we're just honest, most people go looking for a church where is the preaching good and is the music good. And that's, that's not an unfair thing to consider, but if that's the object of your devotion, then what happens when the preaching changes and the music changes? You're out. Try again. Find something else that meets that need. What you see here is not a devotion to a style or a genre, but to one another. <laughs> and that's part of what we're trying to create and foster here with all the different things that we've tried to implement, especially this year coming out of COVID and some of that stuff, creating more opportunities for relationships to flourish because we know that the renewed church has to be fueled by devotion to one another. Like that, that we would hate not seeing each other. That it would grieve us if we have to be pulled apart from one another. One of our key convictions, right, is that we want to be a loving community, that if you become a part of this church family, you're going to be loved fiercely. And we're going to be a loving community that loves the community, right? That, that that is who we are. 
a spirit of devotion that loves one another and loves others well with a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. All right, Th- these are all markers of the renewed church. Let me, let me close this with the tenth and final one, okay? Uh, this to me kind of goes back to point number five and the main task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And in this to me, I'm ending with this one, even though it was mentioned a little bit earlier before the end of the passage, because this is the undercurrent uh, through all of it and is really how any of this stuff comes together. If you, if you start thinking, how do we do all this? I mean, it sounds good, but that's hard. How do I maintain humility? How do I really endure testing and hardship? How do I do all these things we've talked about today? Paul says it really, really succinctly and to me very beautifully. He says, commit yourself to God and his words of grace. <laughs> I love that. Where's your commitment? Where's your devotion? Our hearts need to be devoted to God and his words of grace. None of this is possible by merit or ability, but only by the grace of God. And that is the message that we testify to and the message that we experience day after day. Draw us near, Lord, to your bleeding side. Because it's there that we are overwhelmed and consumed by God's amazing grace. And it's the grace that I want all of us to be reminded of this morning so that we can say, yes, that's where my heart is. That's what I'm committed to, is a God who is rich in mercy. A God who who took on flesh and experienced intimately what it means to be a body at risk. One who understands what it means to face imminent danger. A God who says, I'm here not to be served, but to serve. And he did so with humility. He endured the greatest testing, the greatest hardship the world has ever known. And as he did it, he did it while going from town to town and village to village, preaching words that, will help, that were helpful to those that were in need, ministering to them, caring for them, loving them, teaching them what it meant to repent and to have faith, giving them one central focus, one central aim to testify to the grace of God. And he encouraged them to be alert, to keep watch, because this would not be an easy task, that they would face resistance and face opposition but they could surrender their own needs and look to meet the needs of others, to help the weak, to care for them, and to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. And he preached this message obediently and faithfully until it took him to the cross. And there on the cross, through his bleeding side, his nail-pierced hands and feet, you and I were forgiven. And he took on the greatest threat the human heart has ever encountered, the threat of death. And three days later, church, what'd he do? What'd he do? He emptied the tomb of its power. (laughs) And he gave us a hope that never perishes, spoils, or fades, a hope that allows us to go through this life with this beautiful, incredible promise that we will be with the Lord forever. 
No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain. For he will be our God and we will be his people. Commit yourself to the words of God's grace. Let your soul find rest in Jesus. So that when you go through the seas of testing and hardship, God is your anchor. And you're reminded in those moments that his love is like that mighty ocean. A love that never stops. And on those days where you feel like it's too hard and it's too difficult and you think, how am I going to get through this? You're reminded that his arms are strong enough to carry you through anything by his grace. Let's commit ourselves to Jesus. Let him be the passion of our lives. Let him be the song of our souls. Giving ourselves to God in his words of grace today and tomorrow and forevermore. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, this is who we desire to be. And we are so grateful, God, that you give us a message of hope that calls us to not just be renewed people, to not just have renewed families, but to participate in a renewed church. And as we think about the words that we've seen in Acts 20 and, and all the things that we've discussed over the last several weeks, God, we pray that those things would be true and evident here. So help us to give ourselves fully to these things and to celebrate the grace that you have extended to us so freely and so powerfully through your son. God, I pray that if there is any heart that is here today who has yet to receive that grace, to walk through that, that path of repentance and faith in Jesus, God, that you would prompt them to do so today. And that for all of us, God, that would not be something that we see as just one previous decision, but a daily decision to commit ourselves to you, that you would be glorified and honored in all these things. We thank you, Father, and we pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.